striving so my love
today is Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now I've never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' grave, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a date. Then I said to the king, if it passes the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. A letter to Isaph, the king, keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for. The gracious hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. There is a tradition that the names of the books in the Hebrew Bible emerge from the first significant word that appears in that book, in the Hebrew language. So, Breshit, which means in the beginning, for Genesis. Shemot, meaning names. For Exodus, which opens with the listing of the names of the sons of Jacob who went with him into Egypt. And Mishli, translated metaphors or parables for Proverbs. However, the tradition does not extend consistently beyond the first five, the so-called books of Moses, the books of Joshua, Esther, and Job, and many others tell the stories of the people for which they are named. We just heard a reading from another of those, the book of Nehemiah. The book bearing Nehemiah's name is part of a larger work that includes the books of 
Ezra and First and Second Chronicles. Together, they relate the history of the Jews from approximately 537 until 432 before the Christian era. Now, the book, Nehemiah, tells us that the man, Nehemiah, was an official in the court of the king of Persia. He was the king's sommelier, the king's wine steward. And Nehemiah had become troubled by reports that the city of Jerusalem was in danger of total destruction. He shared his concerns with King Artaxerxes. And by the way, let's agree that Artaxerxes is Persian for Arthur. So Nehemiah went to King Arthur and said, I'm concerned about my homeland, and I'd like your help. So the king appointed Nehemiah governor over Judah. He granted him safe passage, building supplies, and a labor force to restore the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's primary worry was the state of disrepair of the wall around the capital. And so, with the help of loyal Jews and timber from the royal forests in Lebanon, he set about rebuilding the wall. Now, neighboring peoples, afraid of Nehemiah's power and his plans, vowed to attack the wall and destroy it before it could be completed. Their threats had little effect. The women worked alongside the men, and even Nehemiah set a good example, pitching in to help. Even though the effect was minimal on the workers' morale, that perceived danger from the outside did force the Jews to draw tightly within their own community. They cut off all connection with outsiders. The priest Ezra assembled the city dwellers and read them the law from the book of Deuteronomy. Offenders repented, and the covenant with Yahweh was renewed. A strong sense of nationalism developed among the covenant people. Mixed marriages were forbidden, and those in effect were dissolved. The city gates were not opened to foreign visitors. Strict observance of Jewish law was demanded, and all those of foreign descent were expelled from Jerusalem. This exclusivist notion of people walled off from their surroundings, from the larger community, is reflected throughout the Ezra-Nehemiah literature. The exclusivist point of view understood the covenant to separate the people of the God of Israel and only of Israel out of community in the broader sense and into a tightly knit tribe unto itself. Now there was 
a second opinion. Contemporary to the nationalist exclusivist stance of Ezra and Nehemiah developed further in later times, and that was the inclusivist or the universalist perspective. The books of Jonah and Ruth illustrate that point of view. The story related in Jonah is that of a Hebrew prophet called upon by God to preach repentance and salvation to Gentiles in the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Jonah had doubts about sharing any good news or calls to repentance with foreigners. So God arranged special transportation to ensure his safe arrival. Jonah delivered that call to repentance and then waited for God's destruction to rain down upon the Ninevites. But darned if they didn't repent and they were spared. The book of Ruth tells the story of a young woman from Moab, married to a man from Bethlehem, whose family had crossed the border into Moab in search of a better life. Ruth's husband and her brother-in-law, Malon and Chilion, and her father-in-law, Elimelech, all died, leaving Ruth, her sister-in-law, Orpah, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, widowed. Word came to Naomi that the situation in Bethlehem had improved, and so she set out to return home. Ruth chose to accompany her rather than remain in Moab. And there, in Bethlehem, she married a relative of Naomi's named Boaz, Their son, Obed, became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The message of Ruth is that she was welcomed in Judah despite the fact that she was a foreigner. In turn, she adopted the religion and the culture of the Jews and became the great-grandmother of King David, one of the most luminous figures in Hebrew history. The inclusivist global perspective eventually carried the day, becoming the majority opinion of all Judaism. For the overwhelming message of the Hebrew Bible is that God is the creator of the universe, that God is God and God alone Therefore, if there is but one God, and that God is parent of us all, then we are all family. And you know what they say, you can choose your friends, but not your relatives. The scriptures have plenty to say about how we are to treat the foreigner, the sojourner, 
the immigrant, the refugee, the sibling we have yet to meet who is in our midst. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. You and I understand that we all have different perspectives on immigration and refugee policy based on ideological opinions. That's America, and that's well and good. People come to their perspectives for a variety of reasons, and when those perspectives are contradictory to the scriptures, it's important to be clear about that. I can say that I'm a Christian, and my opinion is that my country should not welcome refugees or asylum seekers, that all undocumented immigrants should be exported, should be sent away, Deported because that's what our law says. And when I say that, I should acknowledge that my point of view is in opposition to what the Bible says on the subject. What about the church? In his outstanding book, Assimilating New Members, Church consultant Lyle E. Schaller included a chapter titled, Whom Do We Exclude? He wrote about the many ways that churches, often quite unintentionally, build walls around themselves to keep out people that they determine to be undesirable. Good fences make good neighbors, they say, Quoting Robert Frost's poem, Mending Wall, ironically, the poet implored us not to build walls that separate us from our neighbors. But would the church be a better neighbor by building a virtual wall to keep out undesirables? And if so, how would such a determination be made? For example, should there be a wall to keep out people who use tobacco? 
It wasn't that long ago, within my lifetime, the Book of Discipline made that determination. In 1954, the Judicial Council ruled that, quote, the answer of a candidate for the traveling ministry to the question set out in paragraph 321.4 of the 1952 Discipline As to abstinence from the use of tobacco, in order to be satisfactory, must be in the affirmative and without qualification. The discipline's prohibitions against tobacco were relaxed for laity only a few years before they were eventually lifted for the clergy. Should there be a wall to keep out those who imbibe alcohol? For decades, our denomination, at least officially, strongly supported temperance. The father and son who founded the Welch's Grape Juice Company were not only good Methodists, They were also savvy businessmen who saw a market niche in sourcing unfermented communion beverage to teetotaler churches. The Book of Discipline to this day encourages abstinence, but as recently as 2008, our social principles were amended to allow for, quote, judicious use with deliberate and intentional restraint, with scripture as a guide. Should there be a wall to keep out lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender persons? Our current book of discipline contains language that requires anyone seeking to serve openly at all levels of the church to be heterosexual. Until 62 years ago, it was required that all such persons be male. Bishop Reuben Sines, Jr., resident bishop of our Great Plains area with offices in Kansas and Nebraska, preaching to his colleagues at the Council of Bishops, said there can be no outsiders in the household of faith for old laws of who's in and who's out no longer apply. The bishop alluded to the second chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups, that is, Jews and Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, one new humanity in place of the two, 
thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Christ is our unity. He has broken down the dividing walls that separate us from our neighbors, that separate us from one another. 445 years before Christ, Nehemiah was convinced a wall was needed. So he built one. 2,461 years later, Pope Francis said, a person who only thinks about building walls wherever they may be, and not building bridges, is not Christian. This is not in the gospel. Taking down walls is only the first step. We need to build bridges. And that's our topic for next week. Your neighbor and say, God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Let's go forth to dismantle the walls, remove the barriers and re-examine the attitudes that keep us from fully connecting with one another, with Almighty God, and with our very best selves as disciples of Jesus Christ. And may the Holy Spirit guide us as we go. Amen. for listening to this podcast of the First United Methodist Church in Turlock, California. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. For more information about our church, visit www.fumcturlock or call the church at 209-668-3000. Visitors are always welcome. And now, may the peace of the Lord dwell in your hearts this day. And may God bless you.